Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of the SportsMap podcast, where we are talking all things sports medicine, physiotherapy, rehabilitation, and return to performance. I'm your host, Nick Kane. We here at the SportsMap have just released some fantastic events coming up. First of all, we have the Upper Limb Rehabilitation in Sport that's running in Melbourne November 30th to the 1st of December. We have five fantastic specialist physiotherapists presenting at this event, starting with Phil Cousins. He's the previous uh, head physio for Australian gymnastics and he's currently the uh, head physio for Australian rowing. He'll be talking around the shoulder and elbow in more weight-bearing based sports. Uh, We've got Bruce Rawson. He's the current Australian head physio of the baseball team. Kylie Holtz, a senior sports physio for Australian swimming. Andrew McGough is the Australian head physio for diving and he's also the physio for Brisbane Bullets. And he'll be talking more around some strength-based work for the overhead athletes. And then finally, Myron Jones, who is the head physio from Melbourne Storm and previously head uh, physio for Welsh rugby team. So he'll be talking around the contact shoulder and shoulder progressions. Really exciting event. Places are limited. It will be highly practical and break into some workshops. So that's why we'll need limit numbers and we will sell out by sort of September. So please get in if you are interested at www.sportsmap.com.au. Following on from there, you'll also see that we are bringing Edna King out from Ireland. He's running a series of events. So two main courses, one being ACL rehabilitation and return to play decision-making and two, athletic hip and groin pain. He'll be running each of those two-day events in Perth, Melbourne and Sydney in February 2020. These courses will be highly practical and will be more of a classroom-based setting, so smaller numbers, really interactive, and I think it'd be a great opportunity to tap into, obviously, Edna's knowledge where he's leading the way in both research and clinical applications in both those fronts. So really looking forward to having Edna out, and you can head over to our resources tab on the website and you'll find his video series on athletic groin pain and give you a really great insight into what he has to offer. Now, before we move into today's chat, if you have heard our other podcasts and enjoying, hopefully, today's podcast, please let us know by leaving a review at iTunes. And if you have any thoughts and ideas on future people you'd love to hear, please feel free to email that through to admin at sportsmap.com. Moving on to today's chat with Scott Epsley. Scott is an Australian physio currently working in the NBA as the head director of physiotherapy and clinical diagnostics at the Philadelphia 76ers. He's a certified musculoskeletal sonographer and uses that in his skills as a physiotherapist. I met Scott recently when he's attended one of our courses in Australia. I was immediately drawn to Scott. I think he's a really extremely uh, smart practitioner. He has a drive to continue to learn and develop his skills and he shows a real passion for the practice of physiotherapy. You can follow Scott on Twitter at Scott Epsley. I've really enjoyed having today's chat with him and I hope you do as well. All right, Scott, thanks for joining us. Yeah, no worries. Good to, good to be on. The Philadelphia 76ers just finished third in the Eastern State Conference into the playoffs. How's the uh, squad looking? Oh, we're looking good. I mean, we're, uh, we're coming into the playoffs with a, a relatively healthy team. And, um, you know, we've got a couple of little, little niggles here and things that we're dealing with coming into the playoffs. But for the most part, you know, 
looking good and uh, excited. The guys are just super excited to, to get playoffs started. I guess uh, an Australian working in the NBA, uh, many physios would sort of look at that and think that's that's probably the epitome of where they'd want to get to. Tell us a little bit about your journey, how you got to work in the NBA. Was it a goal of yours? Was it a dream or did it just happen? Yeah, and uh, yeah, take us through this. Yeah, you know, I think to be honest, you know, it, it always was a dream. I, I had a teacher in primary school who put a basketball in my hand when I was about 11 years old. I fell in love with the game. I, I was I was playing cricket before then as a kid. And, um, and ever since then, you know, basketball has been such a big part of my life. Um, you know, when I finally realized that I was never going to make it as a player because I just wasn't good enough. Uh, and, and physio was something that I was so passionate about. Um, I realized that potentially one day it could come back to me in, in other ways. You know, you don't have to be involved in the sport you love just as a player. And I'm sure there's many people listening to this that can associate with that. So I worked with the Brisbane Bullets. I was lucky uh, to know the head coach at the time uh, back when I was a final year student. Uh, and so I got the opportunity to kind of learn uh, from Roger Fitzgerald, really, really great uh, physio uh, and, and well-known. And uh, and then come on as kind of an intern a little bit for my first year out of, uh, of university and work with the, the Bullets there, just helping out um, where I could. Uh, and, and so that was my first experience with professional basketball. And then I went on to work with um, the state league team in Toowoomba, the Toowoomba Mountaineers. Uh, I had a clinic in Toowoomba uh, for seven years. And then finally, when I moved to the States, got an opportunity to work with Georgetown and the Georgetown Hoyers. So I used to cover all sports at Georgetown and, uh, and basketball being one of them. And that was a really great opportunity. In fact, we just signed one of the first guys that I ever worked on at Georgetown, Greg Munro. We just signed him for the playoffs, which is pretty funny. You know, when you fast forward 11 years and you and you see, see how your life is coming back around to you. So um, did that about eight years and started consulting with uh, the Washington Wizards and a bunch of professional teams in D.C., the, the Capitals, Nationals, uh, D.C. United. And then, you know, I guess secretly it had always been a dream to, to be full-time in the NBA, to challenge myself on that level. Opportunity came up here to interview with uh, Philly, and um, it was, you know, David Martin from the Australian Institute of Sport was here, someone that, you know, I really wanted to work with. Brett Brown, who's coached the national team in Australia, is our head coach also someone who I really respect and admire and I just thought it was a really great opportunity and and thankfully they uh, they hired me and uh, you know and then we signed Ben Simmons so uh, that was that was fun to have another Aussie on board as well it's been a good journey but that's that's kind of how I ended up here yeah it's a great story with uh, it's got a real Australian feel down there at the moment it must be a good working environment and a good place to work yeah, I mean, you know, there's always challenges with uh, different philosophies, and uh, and I think working in American sport is very, very different to working in Australian sport. And you know, working through up through the college ranks and consulting was a really good way for me to start. It gave me exposure to the way that American sport operates. There's there's obviously you know different philosophical uh, approaches to things, and so you know you need to be able to um, convey your way of doing things and. and and what you think is best, but also to to blend uh, with you know other people's ideas, and, and obviously in any team sport, you know the ability to work as a team and to work together, and um, and so you know I think that. Uh, 
getting getting to that point where you're comfortable with your team and everybody that you're working with and everybody trusts each other is always a process but i i can honestly say you know we're at that point you know we have a good team and everybody trusts each other recognizes each other's skill set and um you know learns from each other and that's that's you know, a lot of fun. I did a cadaver dissection course last summer with our strength and conditioning staff. And, you know, it was just, you know, it was great to see them in there wanting to learn at that level. You know, those types of opportunities really help build a strong team. Through some different like, contacts in the NBA, you hear some stories about, I guess, some of the challenges with working in that environment around sort of players having their own physios and staff and their player agents sort of taking a lot of control. I guess from your end, what are some of the real difficulties and challenges around working in the NBA environment? Yeah, I think you rattled most of them off at that point. But, you know, uh, again, yeah, players do have, not a, not every player, but, you know, certain players do have their own uh, people. And, and you've got to be able to work with that, you know. There's there's no point being oppositional to that, you know. Um, uh, you obviously have to work with agents. You have to work with front office. You There's, there's just so many players. You have to work with coaching staff. And, and everybody wants to win, but everybody in their own way has their own reasons and agenda behind the way they approach things. And so what I've really had to learn is how to manage that. And, and I think a lot of what, you know, I really do in the NBA is to be able to understand everybody's perspe- perspective and pull it together and then come up with a plan for somebody's rehab that really takes into account all those perspectives and, and gets everybody comfortable and on the same page. And ultimately, you know, the player has to be at the top of that. You know, the player's you know, out term, uh, outcome long term has to be at the top of that. And if they're, if they're not, then I, I think it's time for me to walk away. I need to do something different. And um, I feel very strongly about that. So, you know, trying to make sure that the player is always, you know, the priority number one, and then then we work down the list. But um, that, that's kind of been my approach. What are some of the most rewarding things you find working in the NBA? So the, the, some of those um, aspects there you're talking about would be pretty tough, but no doubt you get some fantastic reward from working there. So, I mean, for me, the ability to combine my two biggest passions in life in terms of, you know, basketball and, and medicine is is unbelievable. You know, I get to learn every day from some amazing coaches, some amazing staff members, some, you know, incredible people that are just renowned worldwide in, in their respective areas. Um, you know, it's, it's a, such a stimulating environment in, in that respect. Um, and, uh, more recently, and we were just talking, uh, you know, before the podcast started, you know, I, I had a, a personal situation in my life and I really got appreciation for what team is and why we work in team sport. The, the support that I had from the team uh, as I, as I went through this, um, was incredible from the players to the front office, to the coaching staff, to our, our sports medicine staff. And it really gave me an appreciation for why we really work in team sport because you don't get that in a private practice you, you don't get that in other settings um to the extent that that you get that in in working with a team and it, it was pretty incredible just touching around a little bit of rehab based work and just getting a feel for the overall structure so that's if someone gets injured uh and you're going to rehab them and as you said you're pulling all those different parts together how does that sort of happen when you've got to obviously travel with the team to the games i know there's a lot of travel that you do just fill us in a little bit on on how the overall structure works in my first year here, uh, you know, I was the first physio that they had hired full time, and uh, it was crazy. Uh, I would stay back with injured players, 
uh, treat them, and then I would jump on a plane at about one o'clock in the afternoon, fly to the game, uh, cover the game, uh, do do a pregame routine. Our pregame routine for for most games starts about three hours before the game um, with with the players, and so do that do the game, come back the next day, come in, treat the injured players again, you know, and, and it was exhausting. So as we've built the program and, and you know, we, we now have, you know, assistant physical therapists, we've also got some consultants externally that we that we use when we're on the road um, that help us out. But effectively, we'll write a program and uh, if, if a player is at a point where he needs things that we have at the facility, such as uh, HydroWorks underwater treadmill, the Alter-G, um, you know, those types of uh, pieces of equipment that we don't readily have available on the road, we will leave the player back. And we have uh, assistant physical therapists that will stay back and work with them, follow the program. Uh, and once the player gets to a point where we're reintegrating them into basketball-related activities, then we may bring them on the road because uh, our coaching staff can then work with them. So the next part of the, the phase is really getting with coaching staff, our development coaches, and coming up with a plan that you know gets somebody basketball ready. So that's probably one of the things I enjoy most about my job. We've got some amazing development staff who, um, through necessity, unfortunately, with the injuries we've had, people like Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, and the the big big injuries that you know we've had to learn to really work together, and um, with a really good feel now for what type of drills give us what sorts of loads and how long you know we need to load for, and then what a game load really looks like and how we need to build that out to get back to a game load we don't we don't like putting somebody back until we've kind of hit at, at least the game loads that they're going to be exposed to and we prefer to try to to go over that you know well and truly sometimes in a, in a season it's hard to do that but because of the number of games that we play and the density of games that we play, it's up to four games a week, some weeks. You, you then bring the player on the road and you work them through and integrate them back into practice and, and back in with the team. And so, you know, the challenges are actually uh, interesting when you get toward the end of the season. We don't actually practice that often. So then you have a player that you're trying to reintegrate. Uh, you have to be creative. You know, you have to bring sometimes G League players up uh, to practice. You have to work with coaches uh, in creative ways to mimic a team practice situation because uh, toward the end of the season practices tend to drop off as as you know players uh, prepare their bodies really to come into the playoffs which is effectively another quarter of a season if you make it to the championship what's a game load look like in nba and how are you guys tracking it i love this word load uh, David Martin and I were talking about this today, you know, because what does load really mean, you know? And I, I think when we look at load, what we've really tried to do is is kind of separate rehab and then uh, just general physical load of a game. Because when we're looking at rehab, it, it's different between a tendon to a muscle to a bone. And, uh, and the way that we quantify that load from a rehab perspective is different. When we look at a game load situation, just a kind of general player load, uh, you know, internal, external loads, how do we quantify those? Um, we use um, a RFID tracking system in our practice facility. And then in our games, we're, we're not allowed to wear anything in the NBA. Uh, so we have the external uh, sport view cameras that give us data 
um, on accelerations, decelerations, distance, you know, all of those sorts of things. Uh, so we, we then, you know, kind of can compare practices and game loads and get a really good sense of, of what, you know, an individual player load is like um, in practice compared to a game. Uh, what we also have started looking at are things that you can't quantify with those cameras, things like contacts. So, you know, if you're a post player and you've got to really wrestle in the post uh, on an offensive possession, uh, you, you might be wrestling for, you know, five or six seconds of that possession just to get position to get the ball. And, you know, that's actually a really strenuous, you tend to Valsalva a lot, your heart rate goes up, you, you, you know, it's, it's very anaerobic type, you know, uh, work. And so, you know, how does that affect a player over the course of a game? And so we've actually started, uh, you know, looking at those uh, individual contacts and just, you know, manually uh, recording them. And, and we're going to delve into things like that a little bit more. You know, how, how do we... Uh, um, quantify the actual speed of a game so you know different teams play at different paces so we look at the number of court transitions people are doing you know how quickly do uh, does the game move how many transitions do they do before there's a break in play basketball is always punctuated with you know a, a dead ball situation out of bounds free throw timeout um, you know and so we, we try to you know correlate that to you know, how, how many times you have to run up and down the court before you get a break? And uh, and then we look at how hard, and we do this kind of real-time in-game so that we get a sense of how hard a game is actually right there and then on the spot. Yeah. So, you know, we really are... I, I don't think we have the answers. I think people who, who think they have the load answers, you know, in basketball, you know, I, I don't think they do. I think we're learning all the time. We're, we're thinking all the time. We're looking at different metrics all the time and trying to see, you know, what what is a really good way to, to quantify how hard a player has worked in a game. Um, and then, you know, the number one thing that I think we do, and I think we do it really, really well, is we just talk to the guys. You know, how are you feeling? You know, uh, this is what we've got coming up. How, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about how we're playing you right now? Um, you know, we've had players that we've brought in and, and they've been asked to perform in a very different style of play to what they're used to. And, you know, we've we've had some injuries and different things like that that, that occur. Um, and so, we you know, we try to also take into account the style of play that a player might be used to and uh, and make sure that we're considerate of that as well because, this you know, the way that we run our defense, for instance, uh, uh, may require uh, a, a forward to switch onto a guard or a center to switch onto a guard. And uh, they may not have been used to that in the previous system. They may not have switched – you know, playing a lot of switching defense. So, um, you know, th there's a lot of different nuances to the game that you, you have to take into account as well uh, that, that, you know, impact player load. Sounds really individualized. If you were to, to nail down three key metrics that you would look at um, across the board for the rehab players, what would they be? For the rehab players? If I was a basketball physio working in here, the NBL or another team, what would be my number three key ones I'd sort of look at, um, irrespective of sort of what injury it is, I guess? There's some good data on XL D-cell ratios and how they differ between between positions. Um, I certainly like to take a look at that, especially from a rehab perspective. Uh, what we've learned is that players in rehab will accelerate 
very much similar to game situations, but they won't decelerate similar to game situations. So even when you put them into a mock game, a practice game, uh, to return them to play, their data does not look like a real game. In a game, you decelerate far, far more than what you do in practice. Um, and I think that's just owing to the intensity. So so that's a metric that we really try to, to look at to see are these guys actually decelerating and there are ways that we can change drills to make them decelerate, to put them into those situations to, to make sure that they're able to cope with those loads. And that's probably one of the, the big metrics. Um, we would also look at, uh, again, the court transition. So one of the, the, the biggest loads you can put on the body, you know, even from a, um, a ground reaction force load, is sprinting full court. You know, these guys don't actually load that much when they jump and when they dunk and things like that. They kind of, you know, they're very good at absorbing those impacts. But the, the biggest load that we've found from using, you know, kind of IMU foot tracker data is finding that guys – uh, you know, sprinting up and down the court. And so, again, it comes back to those full court transitions. When I want to increase load on a guy, I, I put, you know, more full court transitions into their workout. And uh, we know that in a game, you're a 30-minute game, you're probably going to do 90 to 100 full court transitions if you're playing 30 minutes. We want to mimic that. So we would, we would be really looking at, you know, their full court transitions. And then finally, again, depending on what the injury is, and we have had a lot of bony injuries, we do use the kind of, you know, surrogate measure of the accelerometer uh, foot tracker data uh, as, as a, a surrogate for ground reaction force um, to, to get a bit of an idea uh, from a bone load perspective of, of what they're doing. And we've had a lot of experience now, unfortunately, with that. And I think we actually have a pretty comprehensive understanding of that. So we know... You know, for individual players, it varies a little bit. Some guys are what I call heavy loaders, and you know, those are the pounders and uh, runners. You know, no matter what sport you're in, you always have those guys. But for the most part, we know what a game load is. Again, what a 30-minute game would would give us, where we're able to extrapolate that out from practices because we're not allowed to wear this equipment, obviously, in games. But um, and so we try to build them very thoughtfully and very progressively using using that type of technology as well. So. The, the, those three kind of metrics uh, are probably some of the, the big ones that covered most injuries, I would say. This episode of the SportsMap podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU, which was recently acquired by Viacon. Used by leading biomechanic researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, iMeasureU recently released IMU Step, which is a dual sensor lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. It's unlike GPS in IMU Step focuses on lower limb musculoskeletal load via two small synchronized high frequency tibial worn sensors which quantify three main things. The intensity of every step an athlete takes, precise left and right limb load asymmetry, and cumulative tibial load. I measure you works in military, pro and college coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and Harvard University. If you want to know more about how I measure you can help optimize return to play for your athletes, head over to their website, imeasureu.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureu. Yeah, that leads me on to my next question. Now, bone stress and brain injuries is uh, certainly one of your areas of interest. And 
over the last few years, you've had a couple of sort of metatarsal stress fractures and fractures within the game there. Uh, can you take us through, I guess, your way of managing these type of injuries, uh, maybe using a, a case study to sort of take us through your thoughts? You know, we've rehabbed three metatarsals now, one, one we traded for. Um, the other one we just uh, signed uh, when he fractured his and, and, and of course, um, you know, uh, Ben Simmons as well. So um, to speak in general about our approach with that, there can be difficult injuries. You know, there's there's so many refractures in the NBA with fifth metatarsal injuries, especially in the bigger players, but, but not just the bigger players. And uh, there's only a few surgeons that really operate on them. And so, you know, I think uh, everything, everything from start to finish in terms of, you know, the size of the screw, the length of the thread, where the thread crosses the fracture side, all of those things from a surgical um, side right at the start. Uh, in America, they're very fond of their biologics. You know, they, they love to do, you know, bone marrow aspirate and, uh, and other types of interventions to try to, to aid healing of, of the fracture. Um, and so all, all of you know what happens medically, I think, is the first consideration and how that impacts bone healing and having a good understanding of bone physiology and, and uh, you know, when you're in an osteoclastic phase and an osteoblastic phase and, you know, remodeling phase and, and you know, really having a, a good in-depth understanding of that. But then everybody's individual. You know, everybody's bone is, is different. There's a lot of low vitamin D levels uh, in African-American athletes. That's always something that you want to take into consideration. Um, and then once you get through that, then then you start on the, on the rehab side of things. So, again, we are, you know, we monitor that load with the accelerometer uh, data very closely. We even have it in the underwater treadmill. We start everybody out in the underwater treadmill um, I like the underwater treadmill for offloading at, at higher uh, or, or at lower percentages of body weight. I find that the altered G below about 65% body weight, people tend to move not normally, whereas in the underwater treadmill, they still maintain a fairly normal gait pattern and it's fitted with cameras. We can observe their gait. We can retrain their gait. We can monitor the load. And, and we like to see you know these kind of lower G uh, type loads build out first and then as they uh as they progress through that you know we use speed speed is such a good modulator of load so we use speed initially uh to increase uh the load and then we'll, we'll drop that back and we'll increase the body weight you know and as we build out through the body weight in terms of those loads um we will, we will see the g's move toward the middle of the scale uh in terms of loading and then uh, by the uh, by the end of rehab and when they're in a return to play phase, what we should see is kind of this this a lot of low low a lot of low G forces, um, a a sort of spike in the middle G forces, and then a dip, and then a spike in the high G forces. And that's you know we've learned that that's the pattern that we're looking for, and we and we use we use that as a guide to know when a player is actually starting to get back towards a you know a game like. Uh, sort of loading pattern if they're not offloading there's no asymmetries left to right those sorts of things that's that's what we do from that perspective and then we work with the shoe companies um, you know I've been very lucky I've worked with Nike, Under Armour, Puma, Adidas um, in terms of shoe design uh, modification those sorts of things for for all of our well not all of but a, a large 
percentage of our injured guys and you know we play around with the shank in the midsole we may play around with the midsole shape if we need to you know uh, prevent sort of friction or rubbing on the fifth metatarsal the way the outsole wraps up so that the foot doesn't slide off the off the midsole there's so many things that you can do from a shoe perspective to help protect your guys as they're returning to play so you know and then uh, we've been lucky to work with some of the shoe companies who will use uh, in-shoe foot pressure data so the PDAR system uh, we'll do that with orthoses, without orthoses, compare left to right, you know, uh, so that we can make sure that, you know, if we put an orthoses in or if we make an adjustment to the shoe that we think is offloading the fifth metatarsal, that it really is and that we're not actually doing something untoward to the foot. So, you know, working with the shoe companies, working with that type of technology to help uh, make sure that you know we, we've got you know, there's a little bit of evidence to suggest that kind of stiffening the shank there does help prevent refracture in, in some of these bigger bodied people um, there's a couple there's one paper that sort of looked at that but um, and uh, so you know it's it's really and then I haven't even really talked from the, the physio perspective but of course you know, we're very big on foot intrinsics um, you know um, my, my wife is actually she works in professional dance and so uh, you know, in dances, it's super important. I think I've definitely be in, been influenced by by her experiences there. And uh, you know, we really do 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 a lot with foot intrinsics. Um, we we do a lot of proprioceptive work, uh, um, looking at trunk as well. I think that the thing that we miss with proprioception is what the trunk is doing. I'm very big on on this kind of top down stability from the trunk as well as bottom up. You can balance on your foot, but are you in inversion? Are you in eversion? Are you laterally flexed? towards the injured side all of those things i think are super important we, we use a system called the Dalo system uh that that looks at where the foot is balancing and gives real-time biofeedback to the athlete on a screen so you might be an inversion they can see that you can you can give them little exercises and drills to bring them back into a, a more neutral position and especially your fifth met and a lot of these guys a lot of these african-american guys are actually very inverted hind foots and they're just rigidly stuck there and uh and it's any wonder that they end up with these types of injuries so you're trying to retrain their, their proprioceptive tendencies and then building that as i said into more dynamic basketball related drills so how do you you know we we had a guy that you know we signed this year who came in and uh, and had had a fifth mat and when you look at him on the court he loaded the outside of the foot all the time so we had to you know work with him and his development coach to give him drills to try to retrain just the way that he was moving um to to make sure that we didn't run into more problems so um, you know, those are the sorts of things that I think, uh, you know, we, we try to take into account when we're rehabbing that type of injury. If we were to have a, a fifth met, maybe a Jones, you'd advocate surgical intervention initially? In the NBA, there's pretty much the standard, uh, the standard protocol, um, you know, just from a time perspective of feeling uh, the sense that, um, you know, you would miss so much more time if it didn't heal and then you needed to go on and have surgery. So the, the bulk uh, of the medical advice will be, you know, uh, to, to do an RF uh, pretty much straight away. Um, again, if you had a stress situation uh, versus an acute fracture, there may be some debate about that, but certainly an acute fracture that covers, you know, two or three of the cortices of the fifth net, so it's kind of a triangular shape. You know, if you have one that covers all of those, then they're going to most likely stick a screw in there. 
Yep, and then you've worked through obviously your early physio rehab with some intrinsics and working through the calf and foot and ankle into your loading protocols with the uh, water, underwater treadmill and alter Gs. Um, when we get into loading overground, how are you looking at things sort of uh, from a day on day off perspective? Um, those sort of, and what do you think is the sort of most at risk period of time throughout that rehab? The most at risk period, I actually think, is when you have early radiologic healing. You get an x-ray at 10 to 12 weeks and it looks amazing. And the docs are like, this is here, start ramping them up. And, and here, there's, there's really, you know, that's the kind of response you get from the, from the physician. And uh, oftentimes I find myself kind of, you know, back in the physician back down and saying, no, no, we're gonna be a little more progressive, we're gonna be, you know, a little slower with this, we're gonna build this up, you know. Because what happens is at that phase, and I, and I explain this to the athlete, you know, you've got these like little basic multicellular units in your bone and, and they've just, you know, were in their kind of first osteoclastic phase for the first month and now they're osteoblastic, but they're, they're still ready to kind of go back into that little osteoclastic phase. You know, they, they're, they're wound up and ready to go, you know, and, and if you overload, you're going to end up back in an osteoclastic phase and get bony resorption. And uh, and I think that's what happens in a lot of these cases that refracture. I think you have you have what looks like he a healed bone, but at a cellular level, it's not a healed bone. At a cellular level, this bone is is still very uh, much in a, in a phase that it, it could go either way. And you you know, I was just talking to a physio from another another team who have a bone injury yesterday, and we were talking a lot about breaking down bone loading from a, a loading perspective where you're actually trying to stimulate osteoblastic activity and, and, and bone formation, and bone loading where you're trying to develop a body's tolerance to a normal sport-specific load. And those are two completely different phases. That first phase on the underwater treadmill, anywhere through to about that 12 weeks, you're really trying to help the body to kind of, you know, stimulate some osteoblastic activity and lay down some good healed bone. But once you start that return to sport phase, you're trying to help the body to be able to cope with the loads it needs to Im impose, and that's a remodeling phase. And uh, as I said, if you if you ramp that up too quick, you, you get into trouble. So then to come to the next part of your question, how do you kind of look at that from a frequency uh, and volume and duration type standpoint? Um, in that latter phase, um, what I really try to look at is, um, you know, I, initially I, I try to build intensity a little bit on, say, you know, one day and then we'll have kind of – uh, more of a volume day and then we'll have like a light day and give give the bone a little break and we sort of work through that and uh and then i work towards trying to bring uh the volume up by kind of decreasing the time between a little bit of the intensity so i might drop the intensity back a little bit but instead of having three days or four days between an intense session i might bring that back to three days and then i might bring that back to two days you know uh so I'll drop the intensity a bit bring that back and so we're looking at not just an in, intraday kind of load but an, an interday and an interweek like load progression so taking all of those into account so by doing that you ultimately end up building volume and then you know then you can sort of build out uh 
you know, the, the game schedule. So it might be a back-to-back that we're trying to, you know, you've got to be able to play back-to-back. So we need to do two days on one day off. You know, you need to have that in the loading protocol toward the end to make sure that you're able to tolerate that and, and build that up at, to, to game loads. And we know, as I said, how, how much a game load is and how much you have to be able to do in a, in a four-game-a-week NBA schedule. And we know for your position or you know, the level that you are in the team, you know, what, what's going to be expected of you when you come back. Um, we can also do that a little bit through return to play. Like, you know, there's, there is the option in a very tight NBA season to rehab in games, as it were. And that's a concept that's probably a little bit different because of the density of games you know, it may be that you you put someone back on a minutes restriction in a game situation. You know that they can tolerate the acute load, but you don't want to build out the volume. So you might restrict their minutes and build out the volume as they're actually playing in the NBA, and, and that way you don't miss more games. Just to finally touch on a few things there that you mentioned, just around the technology. And I think uh, Dave Martin just recently ran a conference over there looking at different um, technologies we're using in rehab. And you mentioned a couple there. Can you just summarize what they were? I was talking about the uh, the IMU accelerometers, um, which is uh, one piece of technology um, that we put on the, on the feet to uh, get a surrogate measure of ground reaction force through the acceleration of the, of the tibia. Um, Tor Bessier had done a lot of work on uh, with that and with that company. Uh, we also use another product called Connexon, which is one of the wearables that, that we use in practice that is an RFID tracking system that gives us our accelerations and decelerations. You know, we have various shot monitoring technologies that, that help us to track player shots, and those are linked to the, to the RFID tracking, which is pretty cool. I use ultrasound uh, a lot in, in my practice. I use that to monitor bone healing. Um, I, you know, there's a lot of, lot of data I can get from, from the ultrasound, from early cortical union to the density of the bone underneath and, and various things like that. Um, there's some evidence in those fifth metatarsals that if you have radiologic healing but still have a gap on ultrasound, that those are the ones that will resorb. So, um, you know, it helps us to, to make a decision about how quickly we want to ramp somebody up based on what we see from the X-ray versus the ultrasound. And then we use those to monitor all our injuries, you know, uh, as, as we move forward, you know, diagnostically, but also just just to monitor things. Um, I'm using elastography in tendons right now, starting to try to get some data on, you know, is, is the mechanical property of the tendon in terms of stiffness perhaps a better indicator because we know that, you know, grayscale ultrasound is, you know, and pathology on grayscale is not a good indicator of who's going to become symptomatic, but maybe the, the mechanical stiffness property of the tendon. And so then we we also have have seen in rehab where the throughout the rehab process the mechanical property is then returned to normal to match the stiffness of the other tendon or not quite but within within parameters and then track that as they return to play to make sure that they're not too too far out of the boundaries of a, of a normal stiffness in a tendon and we kind of use that to manage our tendons a little bit as well so yeah lots of lots of different technologies that we're employing in, in terms of how we how we monitor these things. Yeah, nice. that's actually a nice little segue there because I was just about to sort of move into talking to you about using ultrasound, both for diagnostics, rehab, and dry needling, which you also do use it for. When uh, would you use ultrasound to really guide your diagnostics? And then, yeah, an example also um, further to what you've just said on how you'd use it throughout the rehab to sort of monitor the athlete's response. 
First thing is that uh, I would say is clinical examination is the number one thing. Our hands, our eyes, that's what we're so good at as physios. That's what we do best. And whenever I'm teaching ultrasound, I tell people that's, you know, that's your number one thing. Don't, don't forget your hands and your eyes. Um, and then from there, some of, sometimes we use ultrasound just to give the player a sense of kind of security and comfort to say, hey, you know, you've got a little bit of inflammation here. It might be, you know, the capsule might be, or the synovium might be a little swollen from a minor ankle sprain, but otherwise everything structurally looks good. So it gives the player some confidence to move forward in the rehab program. So sometimes we use it that way. Uh, you know, we're going to find a lot of pathology on these guys. These guys have played. So you, you have to understand the relevance of what you find and how you interpret that and how much of that, you know, you kind of share with them and the way that you share it with them. And all of those things are very important so uh, i don't want to give the impression that we're just scanning everybody and finding stuff and, and and you know making decisions based on that it's it's very thoughtful with a lot of years experience using ultrasound and understanding you know what's relevant and what's probably not relevant and, um, and how we share that with the player but definitely you know acutely diagnostically you know muscle injuries you can't necessarily see something for 36 hours uh and, and you know, unless you have major fiber disruption but you know um, you know, other injuries, you, you can obviously get an acute diagnostic, you know, ankle sprains, knee sprains, sometimes meniscal injuries, um, obviously bony injuries, very good for. So those are the sorts of things, you know, uh, acutely. Uh, hips, you know, we've had a few hip labrums and they've been very useful to kind of track, you know, intra-articular effusion of the hip, which is almost, you know, for a basketball player, is just horrible. You really can't move if you've got an intra-articular effusion in the hip. And that helps guide our management. Who do we who do we send off to the dock? You know, we've had a couple of nasty ankle synovitises that have uh, cropped up on return to play. You can see them on Doppler ultrasound, and you can and you can give them an injection and calm them down very quickly before before you miss too much time. So it really helps us to to make decisions that you know refer get our docs involved, make sure that you know, we we have it there every day at practice. We take it on the road with us everywhere. Um, you know we've had uh, infections that we've been able to pick up with it with you know and get on you know antibiotics immediately. Things like that that are just you know, it's been so useful for. And then to answer the second part of your question with the ultrasound guided dry needling, um, you know, there are some there are some muscles that are just hard to to needle accurately. And some of our guys' physiology and, and anatomy, I got to be honest with you, you know, you know, big big guys, it's it's a little different. It's uh, it's hard to know exactly where you are if you're trying to needle a quadratus lumborum. Um, you know, I, I needled somebody the other day and, uh, you know, it was like their iliocostales was like this huge, big, separate muscle that you don't normally see. Uh, it's just a very different looking anatomy. Um, and, and you, you want to know where your needle is and especially something somewhere deep like quadratus lumborum where you're right, you know, the viscera is right behind that. So, uh, in someone who's much bigger and much different anatomy, you know, using it there, I find it really good in popliteus for those kind of little lateral meniscal type irritations, um, and popliteus spasm that you get, uh, really good to, to get into the popliteus. You've only got about a centimeter between the back of the tibia and, and the, uh, and the vessels, uh, and the nerve, you know, in the, in the neuro vascular bundle and the popliteal space so you you know you don't have a lot of room to move but if you can get a needle right in there boy it can really relieve them sometimes they they lose full knee extension you can get that back immediately and progress them in their rehab much more quickly 
around hematomas so that you're not actually needling in the hematoma but needling around you can be very accurate you can make sure that you're you're not going anywhere near the hematoma itself but you're you know you're able to release that there's a, you know, lots of ways that you know we, we use it to, to just be a bit more accurate and then some of the the more uh, smaller muscles of the lower leg you know when you want to get into FDL for instance for a tibial stress injury uh, again you know there's some vessels there neurovascular bundle you don't have a lot of room but you know needling FDL distally can be super effective at, at relieving some of that pain you know things like um, quadratus plantae very very effective for some of the plantar pains. So th those are the examples of how I would use uh, ultrasound to guide my needling. It's sort of obviously getting into the later stages of this chat, um, but it would be remiss of me not to um, just touch on, I guess, tendons and ultrasound. So they are using the ultrasound to sort of look at pathology through through the rehabilitation or monitoring process and any seeing changes and how does this fit with the patient's symptoms? Uh, so we, we've been tracking some uh, a number of tendinopathies now over the last couple of years. Um, we're using ultrasound elastography. You know, again, you know, we know that grayscale V-mode ultrasound doesn't tell us a lot. We can see you know hypoechoic areas, but you know, to to quote Sean Docking's work and and uh, you know treat. Uh, the donut, not the hole. We know that there's more normal tendon in a pathologic tendon than there is in a normal tendon, you know, uh, from some of his work. So um, I would say that understanding the limitations of what pathology is telling us. So we uh, tracked thickness, uh, we tracked um, elastography uh, stiffness, and uh, we, you know, this particular one particular tendon had a PRP injection, which uh, again they're very fond of here. I'm, I'm not a super big fan in tendons. Um, I think what it does is it gives us a really good opportunity to rehabilitate them properly because we can kind of shut them down and then say, all right, now now you're going to do a, a proper tendon graduated loading program. Um, I don't know if they heal because of the PRP or because of that, but um, he, this guy did great. Uh, he, he's now playing for another club and he's had no more pain because I actually saw him two weeks ago when we played them. But um, we tracked it, and his stiffness values of the tendon were horrendous after the injection. It actually sent them in in a, in a negative direction. They, in the patella tendon, um, you know, stiffness goes up uh, in tendinopathy. Uh, it, it varies from tendon to tendon, and and the thickness of the tendon was also it was a very thick tendon. And as we rehabilitated him, what we didn't see, we didn't see a big change in the hypoechoic area. We didn't see a big change in even the thickness of the tendon, but we did see a big change in the stiffness values and they started to come back to normal and i think that's fairly consistent sometimes i've definitely observed the thickness of the tendon will go down a little bit his did go down a little bit um, but it didn't go anywhere back to normal and uh, it didn't really correlate to his pain but his stiffness values kind of correlated to his pain and we got to the point where we kind of knew when you're in this range if you go above that you're probably going to start to get sore and if you stay in this range you seem to cope quite well and and so you know it's an n of one and um you know we we have more data now we've started kind of looking at a, a lot of different guys but we don't have honestly to, to be honest that big a problem so tendon tendinopathy that's painful um you know is not a has not been a huge problem for us which is great and i think we do a really good job of, of manage managing those and um you know, I've got a great support in Jill Cook, who's a, a good friend of mine and just an, an amazing uh, resource to have as well. But, um, 
you know, that's what we found and we're starting to look into it a little bit more. Um, working with the University of Delaware, Karen Silbernagel there, um, we're actually starting to talk a little bit about the difference between the quadriceps tendon and the patella tendon. So uh, keep your eye out for a little paper that we're hoping to get published on that soon and, and, and you know, share some of our clinical experiences with, you know, with the differences that we're seeing uh, with stiffness between those two tendons and, and the types of rehab we might want to think about rehabbing them differently, the different properties of those tendons. And, uh, but that's what we're, that's what we're doing. Now, Scott, I guess, um, I could sit here and ask you questions for forever, mate, but it needs to come to an end at some point. Final question I'd like to ask generally, I'd like to know some of your key influences that have really guided you in your career. You know, I already mentioned Jill. Jill Cook, obviously, just has been such an inspiration and, and somebody I think has just taught me critical thinking and, uh, and and I really have appreciated having her in my career. Craig Purdom, uh, who we met up with uh, when I was in Australia recently and uh, haven't seen for a while, uh, another guy who, who really just uh, inspires me even now to see how passionate he is about learning and growing at, at the point in his career. Um, just a, a complete inspiration. Um, you know, those are probably the, 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 the biggest names that people would recognize that I, I would say have have kind of inspired me. Um, there's, I'm sure, a lot of people along the way on a on a day to day basis that I've met in different settings. You know, our patients. I think you know, uh, our our players, our patients are, are often our teachers, much like our children are often our teachers. And um, I think we learn a lot there. Physicians that I've worked with, you know, good and bad, I think have taught me a lot. Um, I've had some great physicians in in DC here um, that that I worked very closely with at Georgetown that I still stay in contact with and uh, and those people definitely have have influenced my career and back in Australia as well in Toowoomba I had a great foot and ankle surgeon spent a lot of time in the OR a lot of time with with him and I learned so much from from you know watching surgery and working so closely with with him. Uh, sports physicians, some great sports physicians, guys in Brisbane there, and, and that I worked with, and uh, you know all, all those people. Um, you know, we have a, a therapist here from um, the New York City Ballet, who was a, a big influence. Taught me a lot about the foot and ankle, and uh, and she's been a big influence. You know, you wouldn't think ballet and basketball, but you know, it's a, it's amazing. So, yeah, lots of lots of different influences it's fantastic to have you on board for a chat and um to see someone who's working at you know, the level of sport where you're working but still uh, have that real desire and, and passion to keep learning and improving it's a it's been a pleasure to chat mate and um yeah all the best for the playoffs thanks mate thanks for having me and yeah you know, hopefully we uh, we're playing for a little bit longer yet mm-hmm.